Welcome to the Fair Talks podcast, where we educate everyday people for extraordinary change. I'm your host, Alicia Chan, Executive Director of Fair Trade LA, a community of business members, nonprofits, and fair trade enthusiasts driving proactive, sustainable solutions for a fairer world. I'm also a social entrepreneur with a passion for ending poverty and creating dignified jobs. Together, we'll explore how fair trade changes lives and communities and what we can do to address some of the world's biggest problems right in our own homes. Let's dive in. Fair Talks is brought to you by Fair Trade USA, the organization that brings you the Fair Trade certified label. Fair Trade USA is committed to building an innovative model of responsible business, conscious consumerism, and shared value to eliminate poverty and enable sustainable development for farmers, workers, their families, and communities around the world. According to the 2021 Consumer Insight Report, data that Fair Trade USA uses to measure the effectiveness in the marketplace, Consumer recognition of the Fair Trade Certified label hit 66% compared to only 38% in 2012. One in three consumers are more likely to buy a product that carries the Fair Trade Certified label. Since launching the Fair Trade Certified label in 1998, Fair Trade is one of the fastest growing segments of the food and apparel industries. To date, Fairtrade USA has partnered with over 1,400 leading companies, including Green Mountain, Nespresso, Whole Foods, Costco, Sam's Club, Walmart, Kroger, Shabani, and Target. It makes me so happy just listing off these companies. Fairtrade USA now certifies coffee, tea, cocoa, sugar, coconut, fresh produce, dairy, and fish. Recently, through groundbreaking partnerships with Patagonia, Athleta, West Elm, Williams Sonoma, and J. Crew, Fairtrade has begun certifying apparel and home goods, improving the lives of not only farmers, but also factory workers. To date, Fairtrade USA and its partners have generated $966 million in additional income for farmers and workers in 62 countries, allowing them to care for their environment and steadily improve their livelihoods. Today, we are honored to have with us Paul Rice, the founder and CEO of Fairtrade USA. After living in the rural mountains of Nicaragua for 11 years and starting the country's first organic and fair trade coffee co-op, he discovered what his life's journey is all about, empowering farmers and workers through business and trade. Paul's rich firsthand experience over the last 30 years in the fields of sustainable agriculture, agroforestry, grassroots economic development, Global supply chain transparency and consumer activation is unique in the certification world. He is now a leading advocate of impact sourcing as a core strategy for both poverty alleviation and sustainable business. Paul has been named Ethical Corporation's 2019 Business Leader of the Year and is a four-time winner of the Fast Companies magazine's Social Capitalist of the Year. Paul is also the recipient of the prestigious Skoll Award for Social Entrepreneurship and has spoken at the World Economic Forum, Clinton Global Initiative, Skoll World Forum, TEDx, and numerous universities and conferences around the world. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for being here, Paul. And I guess, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. Thank you for investing in fair trade campaigns to encourage local advocacy in cities, congregations, schools, and universities all over the country, bringing us together for national conferences, which I miss so much. 
And of course, just thank you to you and your team for saying yes to being the sponsor of this podcast. I remember when I first brought this up to you about this time last year, your response was like, why aren't we doing it already? So we just love partnering with you to increase consumer awareness and consumer demand of fair trade products. And we're just so proud of the growth that we've seen um, and the fair trade certified products just popping up in stores everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great to be here. And thank you for creating this space for conversation about the fair trade world. And thanks for all your leadership in LA and beyond to, to get the fair trade movement moving and, and, and helping more farmers and workers around the world. It's a great time for our movement. We're, we're making yeah, some progress. Absolutely. It's, it's an amazing time to be a part of this movement. You have an amazing, you know, background with fair trade. You were there from the beginning, at least in the U.S. side. And I'm just so excited to have this conversation because we would love to get a glimpse of what it was like in the beginning. So my first question is, I want you to take us back to the early days before the fair trade world, um, you know, blew up in the U.S. and just your trip to Nicaragua and that forever mm. changed your life. Tell us how it all got started. Maybe what are the problems you saw that inspired you to create change? Mm. Well, you know, like you, actually, and, and perhaps like many of our listeners, I have been concerned about poverty and hunger and social injustice around the world since I was a teenager. And in college, I dove into those topics with, um, with my studies and, and, and focused on uh, rural development and economics. And so fresh out of college at the age of 22, I bought a one-way ticket to Nicaragua and went off to get involved in, in rural development work. There was a revolution going on at the time, and it was a very exciting time to be in Nicaragua because the revolutionary government was uh, leading a land reform that was giving land to the poor. And I was very excited by that. I had studied land reform in, in my studies, and, and, and so I wanted to be a part of it. So I, I, I went thinking that I would stay for a year or two and get some you know, field experience and come back and do something sensible, as my mm -hmm. mom would say. <laughs> And I ended up uh, staying for 11 years. So I was there oh, from, wow. I was in Nicaragua from 1983 until 94. So I was there during the, uh, the revolutionary period. And then I stayed on afterwards. You know, I was working with small farmers, uh, helping to organize them into cooperatives. And we were implementing projects that were basically developed by very well-intentioned rural development specialists in cities around the world, in London and New York and so on, and, and sending millions of dollars of development aid to uh, communities like ours to help promote economic development at the grassroots level. You know, I, I have to say my experience was really disappointing. For the most part, I would say we kind of failed mm -hmm. to create a process of sustainable development yeah. in which farmers develop the capacity to solve their own problems. I think more mm -hmm. often than not, we just created dependency on foreign aid. Yeah. Yeah. And that was very discouraging to me. And after doing that for quite a number of years, I was starting to think about what next. And uh, very much by accident, my dear friend and mentor, uh, the late Michael Shimkin, sent me a letter because this was prior to the internet. This is 1990. Sent me a letter and said, have you ever heard about fair trade? And I wrote back, no, what is that? And he said, he wrote me again and said, well, you know, here's what they're all about. And uh, their slogan, I remember this so clearly because it just jumped off the page at me. He said, their slogan, their philosophy is trade, not aid, mm. trade, not aid. 
So it's the notion that the best way to help farmers improve their livelihoods is to pay them a fair price for their harvest. They don't want our charity. They don't want our aid. Yeah, I mean, setting aside natural disasters and, and you know, something cataclysmic where there's always role for aid. I'm not saying that isn't true, but in general, the developer is really for the fair traders, more about making sure that farmers and workers get a fair deal for all their hard work. And so that was very compelling to me. And there wasn't much happening in the U.S. at the time in terms of fair trade. There were a couple of small companies. Fair trade was already growing really fast in Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were a couple of small companies doing fair trade here in the U.S. One of them is uh, kind of the OG uh, pioneer of fair trade coffee in the United States, a company called Equal Exchange based outside Mm -hmm. of Boston. Mm -hmm. And so I made contact with Equal Exchange. And long story short, I organized Nicaragua's first fair trade co-op in the summer of 1990, and we sold uh, one container of coffee to Equal Exchange, and they paid us a fair trade price. At the time, I believe they paid us about $1.20 per pound, and our costs were round numbers around 20 cents a pound, so uh, we paid our our farmers that summer a dollar a pound for their coffee, and here's the punchline. At that time, the local middlemen were paying 10 cents a pound, U.S. equivalent. We got our farmers a dollar a pound, so it was literally 10 times more money. Um, and to put it into context, you know, our farmers were growing about 2,000 pounds of coffee per year. Most of them had one acre of land. So, you know, they'd grow a little bit of corn, a little bit of beans for their family consumption, and then one acre of coffee. And that was about 2,000 pounds worth. At 10 cents a pound, they would have made 200 bucks total mm-hmm. cash income for the whole year, uh, not even a dollar a day. And instead, we got them a dollar a pound. So most of them got about $2,000 that year. It was more money than they'd ever seen. I was a very popular boy. (laughs) I should have run for mayor, um, but I didn't. But my nickname was Pablo Un Dollar, One Dollar Paul. That was the mantra. And, And we used that to organize the second year, 300 families. By the fourth year, we had 3,000 families. So wow. we grew really fast. We organized small farmers all over northern Nicaragua. Most of those sales after the first year were to Europe, uh, to the growing fair trade movement in Switzerland and Holland and UK. And you know, the results for our farmers were extraordinary. Mm. They were receiving so much more money than they would have otherwise. And so they were able to do really extraordinary things like eat three times a day yeah. instead of twice a day because mm-hmm. in in low market in low price markets when coffee prices slump around the world often coffee farmers in in Brazil and Haiti and Peru and other countries you know they're eating twice a day just scraping by yeah um we helped our farmers dig wells we used that money to dig wells and bring clean drinking water into villages for the first time and that had a dramatic impact on the health and well-being of children in particular and of families. Uh, We we set up scholarship programs to keep kids in school. We ran health programs. We reforested areas that had been deforested by cattle ranchers. We invested in quality. We did all of these things, invested in the quality of the uh, the product, right, so that it could Mm -hmm. really command a better price in the market. We we did all of these things. And again, thanks to nobody's charity. It was all thanks Mm -hmm. to uh, trade, not aid, yeah. thanks to this simple idea of of, of, of a fair price yeah. for all the farmers' yeah. um, hard work. So that was, you know, that was my introduction to the fair trade world back in 1990. And, and having lived it for four years in the field, 
and seeing the empowerment and the transformative impact on rural villages, I knew that my fate was to come home, to uh, no longer be Pablo, to shave off my mustache, to become Paul, mm-hmm. and to see if I could replicate the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. the rapidly growing mainstream movement of fair trade in Europe. And don't ask me why uh, Europe is so far ahead of us with fair trade. Uh, I have no idea why Europe is so far ahead, but uh, the U.S. is, you know, a relative newcomer to the global fair trade movement. And um, so it was it was high time by uh, 1998 when I started Fair Trade USA. It was high time that we put a stake in the ground and, and launched our movement here. Oh, your story just inspires me so much because it reminds me of my own experience seeing what I saw in Haiti. Like the nickname for Haiti is um, Republic of NGOs because it's just completely reliant on NGOs now after all these natural disasters and I'm sure the proximity of Haiti to the U.S. So the very first time I heard you on stage use that phrase, trade, not aid, it just Mm -hmm. stuck with me because truly I believe that that is how we can create a sustainable movement. And just seeing how it is in Haiti, I would love to just bring more of that sustainable solution rather than just dependency on aid. So yeah, yeah. I came out of Haiti with that passion of, okay, I want to look for long-term sustainable solutions to help them alleviate poverty. From your experience, obviously fair trade, but I guess from that initial experience, what are some of these long-term solutions that you see can be that solution to alleviating poverty and drive systemic change? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. What we see in, in fair, fair trade communities around the world, especially in communities of, of smallholders, right, of small family farmers, they typically come together and organize in order to participate in the global market, in the global fair trade and, and beyond market. And the way they organize often is in cooperatives, right, that are owned by them. So they come together to create a, a, a way to process and add value to their harvest and then to export more directly. And, and often they're jumping over middlemen in the, in the global supply chain in order to bring their coffee or their tea, their bananas or, or their sugar cane to the global market. And so by adding value, well, number one, by getting organized, creating economies of scale, and then adding value to the harvest and then going direct to the market, they're able to capture a much higher portion of that final sales price than they would if they were just selling their harvest, which is so often the case, selling their harvest at the farm gate to, you know, middlemen that come by and dictate price and say, well, today's price for coffee is 10 cents a pound, take it or leave it, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, in terms of lasting long-term impact, when thousands of farmers organize and create a viable social enterprise, they're able to generate a process of bringing resources back into the community, which are then in, typically invested in both social infrastructure and social well-being, like the examples that I gave before, health and, and education, uh, clean water, and so on. But then on the production side, we see so many fair trade groups investing in their own infrastructure, again, to add value, to improve quality. And so they're becoming viable, and in many cases, multi-million dollar businesses owned by very poor farmers. But when you get thousands of farmers coming together, you can create a viable enterprise. And that creates long-term economic viability. And so if you look at fair trade communities, the last time I went to Africa two years ago, right before COVID, I was in Rwanda in very poor communities where farmers typically have even less than one acre of coffee. 
Mm. Or um, more recently, I was in Mexico post-COVID, right? So from Mexico to Rwanda, everywhere around the world, and whether it's coffee or any other product, what you see is this economic engine, this engine mm. of local grassroots development mm. that starts to turn. And it's not being driven by foreign aid. It's being mm -hmm. driven by the entrepreneurial energy mm -hmm. and the organizational capacity of those farmers themselves. It's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. It's pretty neat just to think, wow, if you just pay people fairly, that can actually just be the solution to bringing equality, you know, economic equality to the world. What a concept. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. Pay someone a fair price and they can solve yeah. their own problems. Like, wow, that's mind blowing. <laughs> So yeah, recently I heard your interview with Conscious Capitalism and I was so inspired by what you were saying about shared value. And it just inspires me more to talk about this fair trade model, um, essentially a business model that uses business for good and to drive change. But what I loved that you shared in the interview was just that everyone wins and this is why it's sustainable. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so... I'm going to say something in a rather bald way for effect and see if I can get a rise out of some of our listeners. I would say that fair trade is absolutely not about the redistribution of wealth. We're not asking companies here in the United States to shave off some of their profits and send it back down the supply chain to farmers and workers and fishers in order to improve their lives, right? Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not about redistributing wealth from rich companies to poor farmers. That doesn't mean that inequality isn't an important issue in our time. I absolutely believe it is. I believe that inequality must be addressed. That's my personal view. But fair trade is a model that's trying to create a win-win-win scenario, yeah. not a win-lose scenario. Companies yeah. lose, farmers win. That's not our model. What we're trying to do is create a model in which the companies that are buying the fair trade products feel like it's good for them too, yeah. right? And we believe that if companies see value in the fair trade model, then out of enlightened self-interest, they'll do more. And that in turn will help more farmers and workers and ecosystems down the supply chain. And so what could be in fair trade of value to companies? How, how does fair trade help companies? I would say primarily in three ways. Number one, and we hear this from, you know, we work with 1,400 plus companies today from small to large. We hear them say that fair trade, number one, helps them manage reputational risk in their supply chain. So because fair trade creates a more transparent and traceable supply chain from, you know, the farm all the way to the retailer, it gives those companies a way to reduce the risk that there's going to be some child labor scandal in their supply chain or that there'll be a trafficked labor scandal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, minimally companies come to fair trade and things like it because of the traceability and the transparency and their ability to, you know, avoid a scandal. Number two, and this is particularly uh, of interest today, given all the supply chain disruption issues around the world caused by COVID. A lot of companies say fair trade helps them secure the supply chain. It gives them a stronger connection to the producers. And producers tend to be very loyal to fair trade buyers because they're getting more money, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So when producers have a sh harvest shortfall and they can't deliver the same amount of, let's say, coffee or tea to the market that they did last year, who do you think they prioritize? Which of their buyers do you think they prioritize? They prioritize the fair trade buyers. Those mm -hmm. contracts get delivered. So there's something about supply chain security for companies uh, mm -hmm. in fair trade. 
And then finally, I would say fair trade gives companies a way to engage the consumer and differentiate their brand and say, hey, not only do we have a great product, but we're also taking care of farmers and workers and the environment uh, up and down the supply chain. So for those, those are the three reasons why companies often come to fair trade and why they stay. And so that's yeah. the value. And we talk about shared value, value yeah. plural, right? Not values, but value plural. What we're talking about is creating new value through fair trade that helps companies perform better, yeah. that helps farmers and workers get more money. And for you and me as consumers, we get value too out of knowing that the products that we're buying are not hurting the world. That they're, mm. you know, that there's no child labor in our chocolate bar. That's meaningful. That's a lot of consumers are really concerned, increasingly concerned about problems in the world and, and how the products that we consume are connected to those problems. And so there is value for consumers in that reassurance that mm. uh, when you see the fair trade certified label, <clears throat> you know that farmers and workers got a better deal. So that's the idea of shared value. Yeah. It's, a win, it's a win, win, win model as opposed to a, a redistributed model. Yeah. And look, we're still perfecting the model. Right. And more and more studies show that consumers are willing to pay more if they know that, you know, there's value, there's greater value in it and people are paid fairly. So, I mean, I, I truly believe that that is what makes fair trade a long-term sustainable model yes. is that it's not just aid is not just, oh, I feel bad. So let me do this. It's like, no, everyone wins. And that's how it could be a long-term movement. Yes. Obviously, we call it a movement now, but yeah. when you first started, it was just an idea. It was just maybe like a hopeful thing that hopefully people will adapt. So did you think that it would work in the beginning? Like, did you even see this as a sustainable model? Um, did you think that it was going to be possible yeah. that one day, you know, these grocery stores would all carry fair trade? Well, I did believe that we would be successful here in the U.S., with the fair trade movement because we had the example of Europe. And I very much feel that here in the United States, our fair trade movement stands on the shoulders of mm -hmm. the European yeah. fair trade movement. And we also had the great example of some of the you know, pioneers of fair trade um, here in the United States, like Equal Exchange, mm -hmm. that had tested the idea, not at, a, mm -hmm. at, not at scale, it was a small company at the time, but they were testing the idea that there were consumers out there who cared mm -hmm. about farmers in the developing world and who would, to your earlier point, possibly pay a little bit more for a product that helped farmers keep their kids in school, right? And so I had a lot of faith and hope mm -hmm. that we would be successful in mainstreaming fair trade here in the U.S., but it wasn't a given and in those early years, a lot of companies slammed the door in our faces. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies said, this is a crazy idea. It might work in Europe, but it's not going to work here. Americans yeah. will never pay two cents more for a cup of coffee just to help some farmer they've never met. And so very early on, we realized that we were, we were going to have to innovate the model relative yeah. to the European model of fair trade, that we were going to have to innovate and evolve in order for it to adapt to a very different market reality here in the U.S. and also yeah. a very different consumer mindset. Yeah. So actually that leads me to the next question is, you know, in 2021, the consumer recognition of the fair trade certified label hit 66%, which is a huge deal. So what are some of the biggest hurdles or challenges you've had to overcome in the U.S. market to get fair trade where it is today? Well, 
One of the early innovations was in our emphasis on quality. We very early on discovered that it was not going to be enough for us to take a message to the U.S. consumer of buy this product, help a farmer and her family. That wasn't going to be as successful as if we could position fair trade products as high quality products, right? What's in it for me, the consumer? And so very early on, one of our taglines was quality for you, quality of life for the farmer. Mm -hmm. And it was this notion that when you buy fair trade coffee, for example, you get some of the highest quality coffee beans in the world. And oh, by the way, bonus prize, you get to feel good because you helped improve the lives of a family. Right. And so almost positioning fair trade, the fair trade attribute and the feel good factor as a bonus prize. But what's in it for you, the consumer, it's this delicious tasting product. And and so that was an early innovation, which wasn't just about marketing and messaging during our first decade. So all through the 2000s, early 2000s, we encouraged farmers around the world to invest in the quality of their their harvest. We helped raise philanthropic funding to support farmers with quality improvement programs, building infrastructure. Uh, We helped coffee co-ops build cupping laboratories where they could, kind of like wine tasting, where they could coffee taste Mm -hmm. and discern the flavor of the coffee and then be able to improve on it and be able to negotiate more effectively with buyers. Uh, We had projects in Rwanda, in Brazil, in uh, over a dozen countries focused primarily on coffee because in the first decade, that was our number one product. And, you know, as a result, our farmers were entering quality competitions and winning. And so fair trade started to get a reputation for being high quality. And so I would say one of the reasons why we've been successful in in the U.S. market is because the product has kind of spoken for itself, the quality of the product. And so the buyers uh, at these various coffee companies and tea companies and others are finding in fair trade products very, very high quality. And that meets their needs beyond the kind of social attribute, if you will. So that's one thing. I would say another reason why we have been successful to the extent that we've been successful in the U.S. market, we, the the broad we of fair trade, uh, the fair trade movement, I think we have done our best to engage the consumer in multiple ways from our grassroots movement, the fair trade campaigns movement, uh, which helps organize college students and high school students and religious congregations and towns like LA, right? I mean, you all have been kind of the ground game, if you will, of the fair trade movement, creating uh, ambassadors that advocate for fair trade in local communities and hold events and raise awareness. And that has been very complementary to social media campaigns that both companies and Fairtrade USA have run to spread the word. All of those different elements have, I think, been a a big part of us achieving what we have today, which is 66%. uh, 66% of American adults recognize the Fairtrade certified label. Mm-hmm. And that's second only to the organic label. That's pretty extraordinary. Wow. That's like that's a hundred, that's about 130 million people who recognize the label. And uh, our data indicates that about 40% of them, so around 50 to 60 million people, are actively looking for fair trade products and buying fair trade products on a regular basis. Wow. But we're getting there. We're not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> but we're getting there. Sorry to interrupt, but we gotta tell you this. 
Did you know that Fairtrade LA led the campaign that officially designated Los Angeles the largest fair trade city in North America and the fourth largest in the world? We are a nonprofit that exists because of the support from people like you. Become a Fairtrade LA monthly donor to ensure this educational content reaches as many people as possible. Go to fairtradela/donate to pledge your support. Thanks for letting me interrupt. Let's get back to the episode. That is so exciting. And to your point about the quality, it's funny. I, you know, I didn't know that that was what you were going to share, but I tell people this all the time. Once you've tried fair trade coffee or once I've tried fair trade coffee, I can't go back because I can taste mm-hmm. the quality. And that is so interesting that, that. it was a, a shift in focus and it, it worked. <laughs> it worked, worked for me. Yeah. It's, um, it's it's fun to think about our model, our fair trade model and our movement as a social movement in motion, in a state of evolution. It's one of the things I love the most about our movement. So we have a very inclusive vision of who should be in the fair trade movement. And that includes farms and factories here in the United States, which is kind of historically not been the focus of, of fair trade. Fair trade is really focused on you know, the global South uh, and alleviating poverty in Africa and Asia and Latin America. And we've kind of ignored the fact that, hey, here in the US, we have tens of millions of farm workers who uh, also struggle to put food on the table and also struggle with many of the same issues. So another way that we've innovated the model and another reason why I would say fair trade is, has gained the awareness and the momentum that it has here in the US is that we've kind of opened up the movement. We've opened it up to new products, new types of producers. And that in turn has brought a lot of additional products to the market and ways for consumers to engage. So our our latest innovation was developing a standard for dairy. We uh, partnered with Chobani, uh, the leading yogurt company in, in, in the US, and we're certifying now dairy farms that produce for Chobani. And so it's just one example of how by opening the model, and making all kinds of products and producers eligible, we're able to reach new companies and therefore new consumers because not everyone drinks fair trade, not everyone drinks coffee, right? But, you know, a lot of people eat Chobani yogurt or wear, you know, um, J. Crew blue jeans. And so we believe that innovating the model is both mission critical in terms of taking the benefits of our fair trade movement to these new uh, communities of workers and farmers, uh, but then we also believe that from a market perspective, that's the best way to kind of build a much bigger market movement with more companies and, and more market momentum so that we can ultimately have more impact. I mean, that's why we do it. Our, yeah. We're here for impact, right? Yeah. So um, I'm curious in terms of world impact, so, you know, with fair trade impact around the world. Over the years, which countries have you seen or experienced the largest fair trade impact? Well, I believe we're in 62 countries now around the world, in Africa and Asia and Latin America. Latin America is still our our number one sourcing region overall, just because it's a major trading partner with the U.S. market. So you'll find that a lot of African producers sell to Europe and a lot of Latin American producers sell to the U.S. Mm -hmm. That just mirrors global trade patterns. That's interesting. Round numbers, about 70, 65 to 70% of all fair trade certified products sold in the U.S. last year were were sourced from Latin America. So that just gives you a sense of the proportionality. But it definitely varies by product, right? Mm -hmm. So coffee, for example, is primarily Latin America, 
whereas tea that's sold here in the U.S. comes uh, primarily from uh, India and Sri Lanka. Similarly, our apparel and home goods program, and you may know we're working with Patagonia and J. Crew. We're doing a little bit with Gap and uh, some cool brands like Prana. We're also working with the Williams Sonoma um, company, so Pottery Barn and West Elm uh, on furniture. And I, I love going into West Elm because it's just fair trade everywhere. I know. Just, it's on every <laughs> banner. It's uh, incredible. It's so fun. Um, yeah, so most of those products come from Asia. They come from Vietnam, India, Sri Lanka as well, a little bit from China. So, you know, the importance of different countries uh, as producer countries in the global fair trade movement really depends on the product. You know, right now, in terms of which countries have most benefited, I'd have to go back and look, but I think Mexico may be number one because it's a major source, not only for, you know, some of the traditional, um, original products that we certified like coffee and, and cacao, but also now Mexico is the number one supplier of fair trade produce to the oh. U.S. market. And produce is our fastest growing product, our oh. fastest growing category. Yeah. It, it, starting with COVID, you know, with people staying home, cooking at home, we, we have a great uh, fair trade produce program. So I'm talking about all kinds of fresh fruits and vegetables from tomatoes and squash to cucumbers and bananas and mangoes and pineapples and all of this, all the things, right? Wow. We have a great program with Whole Foods, but also with Costco. Costco is okay. um, a major seller of fair trade produce, and we've launched fair trade produce programs more recently with uh, with Kroger and with Walmart. So I'm I'm really excited to see where that goes because mm -hmm. most produce is produced on medium and larger farms mm. uh, that employ a lot of farm labor, and often it's migrant labor, mm. and those migrant farm workers are often not treated very well. Yeah. And so you know we have a real mission there to ensure first of all that it's not trafficked labor. Yeah. And then secondly, that those workers get uh, a living wage and that they have decent working conditions and that they have benefits like breaks and maternity leave and all the things. So uh, Mexico is a big focus for us right now across mm. all these commodities. I think Central America, um, you know, Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua have been uh, historically big origins for us as well. Peru. Yeah. In terms of uh, our factory program, Vietnam is number one. And I'm wow. really proud of that program with factory workers, largely women in Vietnam, deploying their fair trade premium, uh, the extra money that they get by virtue of uh, fair trade sales for really important things like uh, home appliances and um, scholarships for their kids and health programs. Uh, women's health programs has been a big use of fair trade premiums in our factory mm -hmm. program. So, you know, it, there's so much impact. I mean, where do we start, right? There's yeah. so much impact around the world and it's all so inspiring to me. Yeah, we had a great conversation with Natalie from Producer Services and oh, just yeah. learning about all the impact through the farms. It's incredible. And in the case of dairy, it was Chobani. And Chobani said, we're concerned. We're really concerned about the plight of those farm workers in the dairy sector. It's dangerous work. There's a, a high incidence of people getting stepped on by cows. You know, so workplace safety is a big issue in dairy, as is traffic labor and low wages. And so Chobani came to us and said, can you help? Can fair trade take this wonderful model that you've developed for coffee and other products and adapt it in a way that's relevant to the dairy industry? Because if you can do that, we'll buy it. 
And so we started with that demand, that express demand, and then we worked back down the supply chain, talking with the various intermediaries, with the co-ops, and then with the farmers. And then we developed the standard, certified the farms, knowing that they were going to be able to make that fair trade sale once they got certified. That we have a lot of momentum right now in the United States. A lot of companies, especially in produce. So I mentioned Whole Foods, Costco, Walmart, Kroger. A lot of these retailers are saying, we're worried about uh, the situation of U.S. agriculture uh, from a sustainability perspective. Yeah. Uh, many of these companies are, are awakening to organics and to regenerative agriculture. And so they're becoming more aware of the plight of farm workers. And they're saying to us, can you develop a bigger, more robust certification program in the United States, certifying mm -hmm. fresh produce grown in the U.S.? And also in a way that would complement the seasonality of produce that's imported from Mexico and Central America, right? Because right mm -hmm. now, I mean, that was actually what led us to um, launch the first fair trade certified uh, farm here in the US, uh, tomato farm in Arizona. We certified it uh, six years ago. And it was because Whole Foods said to us, we have a tomato program with fair trade tomatoes from Mexico six months out of the year. But then suddenly when the growing season shifts mm -hmm. and we start sourcing from the US, we have no more fair trade tomatoes. So can you certify farms on both sides of the border so that we can have a seamless 12 month out of the year program, fair trade tomato program that covers both yeah. sourcing regions, US and, uh, and Mexico. And so again, the market logic behind um, this as well as the mission obviously, which is why we're here. Yeah, suffice to say, if I had to bet where we would see a lot of growth in the next three years, I would say it's in produce grown here in the United States. Yeah. Which is, I mean, also a great response to the supply chain shortage, you know, the global supply chain shortage. And I mean, the increase in needing fair paying wages in the US, it's in response to a lot of needs just that we're facing right now in the world, in the yes, US. Absolutely. I think, you know, at least based on the research that we've seen around the consumer mindset here in the United States, the American consumer doesn't have this fixed notion that fair trade is only for people in the global South. You know, in general, the, the association of U.S. consumers with fair trade is uh, a better deal for the farmer and the worker, right? And they're not, they're not distinguishing, oh, we only want to help farmers in Mexico, but we don't want to help yeah. their cousins who are working yeah. here in the U.S. Wait, that was the debate, I think, in the global fair trade movement is should fair trade just be about Africa, Asia, Latin America and improving lives in the global south? Or should we be truly global? And obviously, our point of view is from both a market and a mission perspective, we should be certifying farms everywhere. And consumers mm -hmm. seem to be supporting it. I mean, that you know, the U.S. produce program is growing really fast. And um, we have a pilot going on right now with Walmart. We've been working with Walmart for quite a number of years on uh, coffee and um, a few other products. But we have a pilot in play right now with Walmart on tomatoes. You know, they're calling it a pilot, but the numbers of millions of pounds of tomatoes that Walmart is buying on fair trade terms right now is yeah. equal to the size of the entire fair trade tomato market put together. Wow. So it's pretty extraordinary. And, you know, their promise is, is that if the pilot works, then they'll scale up the program and take it beyond tomatoes into others, uh, other products. So it's very exciting. And you know, what I can share after just three quarters into the pilot is that the farm indicators are pretty extraordinary. Uh, worker retention is way up on these fair trade farms. 
And labor shortages are on the minds of U.S. farmers right now. It, it labor, short, labor shortage is a big deal. That would be one of, definitely one of the top three concerns of every farm owner in America is where am I going to get labor? Uh, and so if you can demonstrate that on fair trade farms, workers stay, that's an extraordinary thing. Again, thinking about shared value and how do we create value for all the participants in the fair trade community, that's a big deal that workers are staying on the fair trade farms. Productivity is up and quality is up on the product. That's the farm level report card after three quarters uh, of this Walmart tomato pilot. And then on the consumer side, sales are up 8%. Wow. So in other words, the fair trade tomatoes are selling 8% more than the non-fair trade tomatoes in Walmart today. At Walmart. <laughs> at, at Walmart, right? And who would have thought, you know, you, anyone would guess, oh yeah, fair trade at Whole Foods. Sure, of course. But fair trade at Walmart is working, knock on wood. So if we can continue to perform at this level, we're very, very hopeful that we can scale up this program, not only with Walmart, but obviously with, with other uh, retailers. Uh, we could talk about Kroger and Ralph's as well. Yeah. You know, a lot of retailers are testing a fair trade and, and produce seems to be one area where they're testing. The, I know you're based in LA. You all have Ralph's down there, right? Isn't yes, that one of correct. your big, yeah. So Ralph's right now, let's call this a call to action, folks. Yes. To our listeners. So Kroger uh, and Ralph's are running a 12-week fair trade tomato pilot. It's on the shelves. It has the fair trade label on it. And uh, they're going to look at these same indicators, both on-farm indicators and then the sales indicators. So you and I can make a difference. If we go in and buy these tomatoes, we can help tip the scale in favor of uh, Ralph's scaling up uh, a yes. fair trade program and Kroger um, in, uh, I think, the Denver area. Uh, they're, they're, Kroger is testing uh, the mm -hmm. same pilot. Denver and LA, I think, are the two yes. cities where the pilot's going on. So, you know, vote with your dollars. I mean, yes. that's how we, each one of us as a consumer, that's how we change the world, one purchase at a time. And it really does matter. Every purchase matters. So yeah, if you are in the LA or Denver area and you're listening between the month of May to July, 2022, yeah. go to Ralph's and buy some fair trade tomatoes. Show them that we do care. And I hope to see their program, their fair trade tomato program <laughs> go nationwide. <laughs> Ralph's and Kroger have a, a sub-brand. It's called Simple Truth. Uh, fair, we've been partnering with them now for three years to get all kinds of Simple Truth products converted to fair trade. So I think we have Simple Truth coffee and Simple Truth tea and Simple Truth chocolate and so on, right? But this move into produce is kind of new. So Simple Truth mm -hmm. fair trade tomatoes is potentially a really big deal. I don't know whether our listeners know this, but Kroger is um, the number two uh, grocer in America after Walmart. You know, Ralph's is part of the Kroger system. Uh, Fred Meyer up in the Pacific Northwest is part of the Kroger system. So Kroger has a lot of sub-brands, but suffice to say, uh, if we can get Kroger to go all in on fair trade, that's a big deal. That'll help yes. a lot of farmers and workers. I'm definitely seeing more of the Simple Truth Kroger products with the fair trade logo. And I was going to ask you if you're hopeful that you know, this fair trade movement is going to scale up, but just based on our conversation, I'm so excited and so hopeful. So I feel like our conversation answered that for itself. <laughs> full of hope. I'm always full of hope. And you know what? Let me just say, I'm not only hopeful, I'm really optimistic. I mean, this is, this is the advantage of being an old dude like me. 
Uh, you know, I've been in the fair trade movement so long, and I've been pitching fair trade to companies for so long. I see, you know, the the kind of the long view of the shift in corporate attitudes towards fair trade and things like it, right? Supply chain sustainability, you know, broadly speaking, and and ethical sourcing, broadly speaking. Fair trade obviously isn't the only model. Uh, our label isn't the only label within the fair trade movement, right? So Fair Trade USA and Fair Trade Certified is a part of a much bigger phenomenon mm-hmm. that uh, some people are today calling impact sourcing. Right. Mm-hmm. We know what impact investing is. Well, impact sourcing is this mm-hmm. idea that you can drive social and environmental impact in the world as a company through your sourcing practices. So I see a real shift mm-hmm. in the attitudes of supply chain managers at these big companies, in the attitudes of their sustainability people and the CEOs. I mean, it, increasingly, you see mainstream companies talking about these issues and doing more than just talking. Increasingly, you see companies moving to implement one approach or another, fair trade or, or, or other approaches to bring greater transparency into the supply chain. And then in so doing, to bring, bring uh, greater equity, greater fairness and, uh, and greater care for the environment at a time when everyone's talking about climate change. Uh, and with workers at a time when we know that uh, there's still social injustice, there's still poverty all around the world. We still have 2 billion people trying to survive on $2 a day. And consumers know that there's a world of hurt out there. And, and I think the main problem for most consumers is they don't know what they can do. We don't know how we can help, right? The, 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 the problems of climate change and global poverty seem insurmountable. And so one of the things that I love so much about fair trade is that it, it puts the power squarely in our hands. Every time we go to the store, we can vote with our dollars for a better world. We can, we can change things, one purchase at a time. And, and I think you know what is different, and the reason why I'm optimistic about our collective future is that the American consumer is increasingly speaking, and corporate America is listening. Yeah. Corporate yeah. America is listening, and they're responding. And, yeah. and I just find that very, very encouraging. Definitely. I see that too, and reflected in our market place. Um, here's a fun question to kind of, you know, bring our conversation to a close. And this question is going to be hard for you. <laughs> but what is your favorite fair trade product, or at least your current favorite? That's hard. That's so hard. Um, you know, the in the world of Zoom, where you only show from the waist up, <laughs> no one knows no one knows what pants I'm wearing today, but actually I'm wearing my new fair trade sweatpants from REI made in a fair trade factory in Vietnam. They're super comfy. They're super um, practical. They look good too. I think I might have the tag. So I'm really excited about my REI fair trade sweatpants. And um, I have granola and fair trade Chobani yogurt every morning along with my fair trade coffee. So, (laughs) you know, I'm pretty excited about those two things. Yeah. I did not know that REI had fair trade so, so that's a great um, resource for people. Go to REI. Yeah. <laughs> we ask every speaker this question at the end of our episode because we want to give listeners a clear action step. We may have answered this already, but what is one simple step our listener can do now after listening to this episode to help create a more fair world for all? Yeah. Well, there's so much that we can do. It really is true that we have so much more power than we, we realize. I think of Americans, I think of consumers in this country as um, a sleeping giant. Collectively, we are a sleeping giant. 
we're giants in the sense that we have so much power, so much ability to affect change, but we're still kind of asleep, yeah. you know, in, in, in the sense that we're not yet fully exercising the power that we have to influence corporate behavior and get companies to do things like fair trade. And so, you know, our collective call to action is wake up, folks, you know, wake up, because if we can awaken the sleeping giant, corporate America will listen. I think concretely, you know, we talked about it. There's a pilot going on at Ralph's and Kroger in uh, LA and Denver. So if, if you live in those areas, go buy those simple truth fair trade tomatoes, because that will determine the outcome of one of the largest retailers in America in terms of what they do with tomatoes. And, and it's on y'all between May and yes. July, you, you know, you can make a difference just by going and buying tomatoes at, yes. uh, at Ralph's and, and Kroger. So that's one really concrete thing. But then same thing, fair trade tomatoes at Walmart. Uh, it's in a pilot. Walmart is looking at the results. We can affect the outcome. I just came back two weeks ago from the Specialty Coffee uh, annual trade show. It was in Boston this year. And I connected with so many coffee companies there who said they're launching new fair trade products every quarter, every year. And their commitment to those products depends on how consumers respond. So if we buy it, they'll do more. And it really makes a difference, you know, for coffee farmers around the world, it really makes a difference. And not all fair trade coffee, uh, not all coffee is fair trade, right? Yeah. Only about 6% of the coffee beans sold in America today are fair trade. Wow. So we got a long way to go. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have a beautiful movement. Last year, altogether, fair trade products generated over $130 million in premiums for farmers and workers around the world. That's a big deal. $130 million in fair trade premiums at a time when the world was still struggling with COVID. That's extraordinary. And we should all feel proud about that. And we still have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such (laughs) an important reminder that we have so much power just with our purchasing power. We have so much influence more than we realize. So next time you go to the grocery store, just remember you hold the power in your hands. Yeah, we do. Thank you so much, Paul. This was an incredible conversation and I'm more hopeful than ever for the future of fair trade. Oh, such a delight. And I think we're coming up on World Fair Trade Day and it's just a reminder that uh, our movement is global and that the farmers and the workers and fishers around the world who who make our food and and sew our clothing for us, they uh, are in community with us and we are in community with them. And um, I'm just really uh, proud to be able to share a little bit with our listeners today and, and grateful for you, grateful for everything that you're doing to, to help folks around the world. Thank you. I want to thank the creative team behind the Fair Talks podcast, our executive producer, Juliette Bucquerel, our editor, Paula Park, and our marketing team, Jasmine French, Elena Alcero, and Lizzie Case. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fair Talks podcast. Thank you for being a part of our community and sharing the fair trade message. Thank you again to our sponsor, Fair Trade USA, for making this possible. Now, are you ready to create change? The next time you're out shopping, just pick up one fair trade item to buy, like coffee, chocolate, or bananas, and make a difference. Ask your office, church, business, school, or your family to shop more fair. If you have any questions or want to learn more, head over to fairtradela.org podcast for show notes, discount codes, and additional resources. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And follow us on social media at Fairtrade LA to join our amazing community of Fairtrade lovers. 
Tune in to our next Fair Talks conversation to hear more life-changing stories. Thanks for listening.